0: Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus 94 Research, the science of decision-making. A very good morning to you and thanks for tuning in. This is your weekly installment of Beyond Governance and my name is Nimrod Simbelik. I hope the Women's Day celebration went well despite heinous stories of violence and femicide which appear to be unrelenting. In the same talking, let us not forget that in a corporate space, women con- confronted with pro- proverbial glass ceiling as they are marginalised and underpaid. For far too long, women suffer in the hands of men, and yet we must always take a stand not only by denouncing gender-based violence but making a concerted effort to redress the gender inequities iniquity- which are pronounced in companies. Edmund Berg once said, the only thing necessary for a triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. This code exhumes intellectual dishonesty amongst us men. Some people are only happy to, to speak about their particular race. They are content with the status quo in churches, social clubs, political parties, and indeed in the boardrooms. Corporate ownership it remains unchanged due to political um, and apartheid history in our country. It is on this basis that leadership remains predominantly white and male. According to Duma, Duma, Mabule, an economist and a founding director at the Center for Economic Development and Transformation, most Africans would agree that a transformation project is a disaster. Following the same trajectory, the employment equity reports will attest to this view. Let us not find excuses in terms of addressing transformational imperatives or pursue or consider transformational imperatives from an ideological conviction but rather look at transformation from a business imperative. We can't have islands of prosperity in a sea of object poverty. Service delivery protests, which has become a norm in this country, are at the heart of community institutions. This is evident of grinding destitutions of pandemic proportion. which we are not careful. No one will enjoy the, the fruits of their labor. Some executives, in my view, loathe the narrative of transformation and never to want to take accountability for the mess we found ourselves in. And again, if you think I'm off the mark, please peruse the any competition reports. You have blue chip companies involved in, anti, in, in anti-competitive behaviours. How do we address racial inequalities amidst anti-competitive behaviours? The new entrants who are black have absolutely no chance under the African sky whatsoever. These are some of the issues or nugget, which political voices calling for immediate radical empowerment as a result of the laissez-faire approach, which has been characterized by policy um, imperatives as we know them, that there's a need for those to be replaced by a more robust system, which will compel companies to act. Anyway, in our today's conversation, we are putting a spotlight on corporate governance scandals domestically and internationally. On that basis, we ask the question, what have you learned from Goals and series of shenanigans, that's a million-dollar question. I, I would agree with you. In setting the scene around corporate governance, I've looked at few international corporate governance shenanigans, if you like. One is that of uh, Waste Management, Inc., which is a publicly traded U.S.-based management company. The Security and Exchange Commission found that the company's owner and a former CEO were guilty alongside several executives. And they were fined. And guess what? We also had the audit companies after Anderson, which ignored about four, seven million rands. Incredible information. They did not, 457 million, which which they did not in, include in the balance sheet. The other interesting example that I want to throw in is that of Enroll. Do you remember Enroll? For those who may not remember Enroll, Enroll was a, a corporation was based in, in the U.S. dealing in commodities and services and services skills and a former CEO. Lay had kept billions of rand's of debts of the company's balance sheet, and again fast forward uh, the the scandal led to the bankruptcy of Endrome and the delusion of under, of, at Anderson, under at Anderson. The other interesting point that I want to flag is that of yet another American company um which was uh, which is Wellcome. for those who may recall Wellcome was an its, it's, it's base it was a telecommunication company, and again in two thousand and two, just a year after the andron scandal it was discovered that Wellcome had inflated its asset by almost 11 billion rands, making the far more largest counting scandals we've ever seen. The last one that I want to reflect on is Tyco. And the list goes on and on and on and on. And here at home, by the way, due to you know globalization, whatever happens in the West, happens in the South, and it's a, it really depends on the magnitude. We've got our own share scandals here. When you look at companies such as Stanoff, which has become very popular case study for MBAs and, and other uh, degrees. Tonga Tulett, Gupta own companies, KPMG and McKinsey and company, just to mention by the few. These are some of the biggest corporate governance scandals that we have seen to date. Without any waste of time, let me welcome my guest, Alan Mokoki, who is the Chief Executive at um, Saki, as well as Rasol Molobi, who is the um, Executive at Brain Hill Africa. Gentlemen, good morning and welcome
1: to Beyond Governance. Good morning, Nimrod, uh, and good morning to your listeners as well. Uh, good morning, my good doctor, and also to all your listeners, and also to Alan Mokoki
0: Thank you very much, gentlemen. Without any waste of time, I want to, you know, um, throwing a question towards the direction of Ellen. There's this different use of discourse, you know, in a public sector uh, around corruption. We often refer to it as rampant corruption, maladministration, administration And yet, the same discourse is not prevalent in the private sector, as we know. In the private sector, we use phrases such as accounting irregularities. Is that different?
2: Well, Nimrod, I don't think that there's a difference. Uh, and you're quite correct in that Tend to drive. The narrative, you know, as they say, uh, to the victor, all the spoils go. Uh, History is normally written by those who are victorious. So in the sense that those who control the media houses and those who are writing the checks, For advertising, in keeping those publications floating, and those who own the media, they happen to be people in the private sector. So in a sense, you do get a bias, uh, and I would would probably call it maybe a heuristic and a bias, that tends to want to see business as more cleaner, Uh, our crimes are more mistakes, and the crimes from the other side... Are more gory crimes that are, as you say, are, are around corruption. And yet, all these things that you're mentioning are actually corrupt practices. And that's why you've got laws uh, that talk about corrupt practices acts in South Africa. You know, the Prevention and Combating of Corruption, and all those particular laws exist precisely to deal with these issues. But that and the laws are there, of course, in South Africa as well, including in the Companies Act and other areas that specifically mention those words like corruption, but that's not what you hear in the narrative in terms of the, the, the representation, or I should call it rather the misrepresentation, of what in effect is something wrong that would then be misspelled or misrepresented as something much lighter than it would be. So you made an example of Steinhoff, for instance. I would think that if you looked the media play around Steinhoff, which is really something terrible that happened, especially to those pensioners who have lost lots and lots of their money invested in Steinhoff. you will find that there has not been as scathing write-ups about what has happened on the business side as it would have been, for instance, if anything were to happen at an s or a Transnet. So that's a fact. It's a true fact of what is currently happening.
0: Thank you very much for that insight. And then, so basically, from what you're saying, the indication is that it is a fallacy. Uh, maladministration is maladministration across the board. Corruption and fraudulent business activities are that across the board, irrespective of which sector one operates in. Am I correct to assume that was pos- the particular position? Oh
2: yes, absolutely. Because as you recall, in fact, it's a it's a very interesting episode because even within government itself, when you say there's public sector corruption, there's always two sides to it. In other words, there will always be the business person on the other side. Who is actually paying the inducement or the bribe to carry the favor from public official. And then there is then corruption that's taking place within business itself, intra business corrupt, intra private sector uh, corruption that does not have anything to do with the state. So if, if you then had to really look at where most of the corruption is taking place, you would think, or oh, you'd have to agree that business is a common denominator in all corruption because government cannot corrupt itself, you know, so government needs the hand of business from outside to be paying those inducements and, and bribes and whatever the case might be. Uh but there's also the corruption that's just taking place uh in the private sector on its own without
0: involving the public sector. So indeed, yes, absolutely. Thank you very much. Uh so let me bring it to you here. You are a you know, pretty much a media mogul in your own right. I mean I've made some very interesting observation about um power relations and the extent to which some of the media houses aren't pretty much ready to expose or to have a scathing attack on what is happening purely because of uh, business interest. Why why are we perpetuating that kind of environment based on your understanding?
1: Let me first acknowledge um, what Alan has said, uh, which is very true, that corruption is a double-edged sword. You have a corruptee uh, from the public sector side or even in in the in the private sector where a person receives inducement which becomes a corrupt act but you also have a corrupter. and if you look at the developments uh, that came out of the state capture commission in fact there are many instances that illustrated some of the process of corruption was even initiated by the private sector where you'll have an institution even developing tender specs for a particular state-owned entity and a a corruptee within the public sector then adopted that, publishing that. Then you realize that the tender specs were customized specifically for the person who, who drafted them. But again, then... We then, if we look at issues of governance, we, we, we should look at the essence of a corporate brand. A brand at its essence should be having a, a set of, of values, a, a set of ethics, a, a set of morals to which they will be held accountable. And in this instance, especially if you look at the media, unfortunately government isn't using its authority as the biggest advertiser in the South African media industry to stamp out corruption. Because with the private sector, because the media relies on advertising, they wouldn't want to to upset a brand that advertises in them. And as a result, when they are reporting all these articles on these articles about corruption, they'll often only concentrate on the corruptee, as opposed to also covering the corrupter in the entire value chain. So it's a matter of who's paying the bills. And in this instance, our government should be saying, I'm the biggest advertising spender, therefore you should always have a balanced reporting when you look at all these issues of malfeasance, of maladministration, of corruption. And this is where, for me, this is where our, our media is failing. In fact, just a week ago, uh, black advertising companies got together and they established a, a a lobby group that will also advocate for sufficient business to be given to your black advertising agencies. Because right now, they only access 2% of the advertising spend in the entire country and this is a shame because we also have a charter for for the media industry and the traditional establishment isn't following the prescripts of that charter so for me then i would say government should also be stepping in as the biggest advertiser to say we are ring fencing this percentage of our budget to be allocated to black-owned advertising or communications and marketing agencies in the country. I think on- if that happens, then the narrative will also change. We will begin to see balanced reporting on what is happening in this country.
0: On that very note, my good sir, let's take a quick break. We'll come back just in a second. Beyond Governance, making sense of doing business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision making. Well, welcome back. This is Beyond Governance at 101.9 High Fm, and I'm joined by Anna Makovky, who is a chief executive at the Sarakin Chamber of Commerce and Industry, Saki, as well as Sol Mulobi, who is an executive at Brent Hill Africa. And we are unpacking the lessons learned from domestic and international corporate governance scandal, which drove business and countries billions of rents. Before we went to that break, we got very interesting inputs and insights from the colleagues in terms of what constitutes the biggest quagmire. Obviously, um, you know, taking up from where Seoul ended is the fact that the business spend of African business in the winner space, it's hardly 2%. And government, in his view, is not pushing enough as an influencer of expenditure to show that there's a balance exposure or the balance of reporting in terms of some of these issues. Going back to another point in the same vein, and then what does this say about shareholder activism? Because shareholders are very happy to catch in when companies have perpetually performed well. They've got huge um, dividends that they are looking forward to rake in. And whereas when these big shenanigans happens, one begins to wonder and ask questions about where are the shareholders, what types of shareholders are these companies had, and what will be the ideal shareholders? Because um, if you, I mean, you have correctly pointed out that um, you know the the biggest corporate governance scandal we've seen to date in the country is that of Stanoff, which dropped. Literally billions of rands of patients' money, and the question is: Where were the shareholders? Let alone the boat?
2: These are very interesting dynamics about what I would call the South African leadership question, um, which in itself creates a problem. So, in many of our environments, you, you know, I think um, um, many years ago um, um, I, I was partners with the, the revered Professor um, Vincent Mapai. And he'd crack a joke and say, you know, Alan, we and the Arabs long resolved the issue of leadership. In other words, you know, he he was telling me a story, uh, uh, jocularly, of course, and saying that when Mandela died, uh, people wanted to know, where's Mandela's son? Why is he not taking over? So we have sometimes this hierarchical uh, issue around how we want to interpret leadership, that we are looking for authority all the time instead of us ourselves leading and taking decisions. And I'm not so sure whether it's because of a Judeo-Christian Islamic as well as African culture that almost always emphasizes the omnipotent. In other words, there's always someone on top, and everyone else is always waiting and looking for leadership. So that's a structural problem in terms of the psyche of society, whether in politics, uh, whether in religion. Uh, many people go to church, they don't quite read the Bible because the, pre- the pastor is there to read the Bible for them. Um, Whether it's in other business organizations, we're not creating the culture where people can participate and engage. Everyone is waiting for the CEO to take the decision. Whether it's in politics, everyone is waiting for the president to take decisions. Now, you'll see the narrative in South Africa, for instance, when uh, and the ruling party is a case in point. Did you know that the president of the ruling party does not actually have any executive powers within that party? If you look at the constitution of the ruling party, the ANC, in this particular case, you will find that the president has like three powers. He's the political head, he can chair meetings. I don't know what other thing that's useless there that he's supposed to be responsible for. So now you read the media, the media is always asking when there are problems in the ruling party. Why is the president not acting? He should act against uh, people that he's uh, fighting with, whether it's Ace Makashula or whoever. He must, but he doesn't have the powers to do so because there is no constitution of that ruling party that enables him to be able to do so. Because all powers are vested within the National Executive Committee, and he is subordinate to that a, a National Executive Committee. I'm making this point generally because you are asking a very critical point about where is the shareholder? How is the economy run in South Africa? It's if you draw a graph, a vertical line, and on top you put savings, and at the bottom you put investments, savings represented by our salaries, the cash flows that run in the system, any money that you are going to save, uh, any cash that's moving, whether you're buying or selling goods, whatever the case might be, because it ends up either in the retail shops and it ends up in the banks, and then the banks will actually deploy that money somewhere, either in asset management companies or in other investments. At the bottom of that scale is investments. In other words, in the middle between savings and investments are intermediaries or intermediation. That's where you find bankers and regulators and legislators and the Reserve Bank, asset management companies, insurers, whatever the case might be. When you look at the majority of the listed entities, you'd find that outstandingly the majority of those shareholders are actually represented by asset management companies. In other words, institutional shareholders, like your big insurance companies or your big asset management companies, whatever the case might be. The pensions or the pension funds, they are run by just a group of trustees and they will take the money and give it to any one of the asset management companies, be it Liberty or Old Mutual, whatever the case might be. You don't see the individual shareholder in that room. What you see is either the chief investment officer of an entity, let's say, let's take the PIC as an example, for instance, because they look after the GEPF funds, uh, the public investment commissioners. It's only the board there and there will be the chief investment officer. So you are talking about an individual who may have a different side of politics because his role in running that particular pension fund, his role is very specific, is that grow the investment. That's it. Preserve and grow. Uh, Get us into investments where we can actually maintain the money that belongs to the shoulders. I don't think that the individual pensioners in the the government public sector, whether it's 1.5 million people, are necessarily giving the PAC a mandate to play a particular political role. No, they're not. Their interest in terms of the Pensions Act or whatever governance structure that relates to their provident fund is that they should preserve, don't take risks that don't make any sense, diversify our portfolio, follow the capital asset pricing model where we don't want to get into trouble if there was a big global uh, problem in the economy. And those basically tend to be the only requirements that are in the mandate of the, of the, of the manager of those particular funds. Now you then ask the question, why are they not asking the right questions there? No, they are not interested. They are only interested in making money, and that's all they they are. So they are not necessarily going to engage uh, in other issues of social justice. They are not going to go in and get themselves engaged in whether things are being run in a particular way. And in a number of cases as well, they themselves simply nominate the usual names to see it on the board of directors of a company, and shareholders by their very nature only will come and participate in the governance of that particular company once a year in the AGM, only when it relates to choosing two entities, choosing the board, number one, and then uh, approving the appointment of the auditors. And that's about it. And then they disappear into the sunset. They are never really engaged thereafter unless there's a special meeting that they would like to call As long as the business is doing well and they are being told by the board that eventually appointed there that everything is hunky-dory, then everyone else continues with their business. So we have this hierarchy problem, as I say, either at an institutional level, either because we're always looking up to authority. The South African psyche is what needs to be developed from very moribund in a way a very inactive and a very uh almost receptive to just everything that's taking place the problems that we're facing in the country today are a function of everyone is looking for cyril ramaphosa to solve the problems you and i are not thinking but we need to solve the problem because we are we're brought up to believe in the higher authority and the higher authority must always come the fact that he himself is depleted in terms of ideas and solutions and uh, capabilities of what can be done for the country today isn't something that we're interested in. Every time there's a problem in South Africa, we want to blame someone in authority. And I think that's part of that culture that needs to change.
0: I couldn't agree with you more. You've, made, you've raised a very a number of pertinent issues about the in, the institutional makeup of, um, of the holding system. That the, the the deployment of resources are, are mainly are mainly meant to grow and preserve the investments. Uh, the, the the discourse about social justice don't necessarily dominate the 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 the, the, the landscape as it were. Uh, let me bring in Saul. I mean, based on your observations, Saul, and um, and again at the tier at a, at a, a tier uh, lower that of a board. We have seen, in most instances, uh, the boards of this multinational um, and know the way the organization, the boards are always found wanting. What is wrong with the picture? Before, we ought to have uh, got our ducks in the row, given the fact that, um, you know, some of these things will be noticed. The the, the, the commission in the state has been one of the most respectable um, uh, commission that investigates the wrongdoing, and they've been able to unearth without prejudice and number of um, unwanted or questionable deals, and surely we should have learned something um, at the board level. What is it that should be done differently by those that are nominated to sit in board? Given the fact that we've got a very robust legal system, uh, companies act is fairly clear, uh, PFMA is fairly clear, and yet the employees don't seem to concede to those basics what should be done differently in your view, so?
1: Transformation has happened shareholder level to some extent if you look at uh, the demographics there at board level and sometimes even in top executive management. But it still has to happen at operational level. As Alan was saying, we, we don't have enough numbers of, asset managers in these institutions who are Black or they have an orientation to say, we are going to support uh, all these enterprises in line with the prescripts of broad-based Black economic empowerment. That's the problem. In In the media industry, we do not have in, enough um, uh, media planners who, uh, who have that orientation to because media planners are the ones who decide uh, in which media institution am i buying space and if you have someone who hasn't embraced transformation that person will continue supporting the traditional establishment and as a result then we have our entire ecosystem not not very favorable to your small and medium enterprises, or to emerging, emerging voices um, in the in the in the media industry. I also have a problem with, with, with government, especially if you look at how they dealt with some of the cases that you you have mentioned in your in your opening. Look at the the collusion by the by the construction industry. Uh, during, uh, the 2010 FIFA World Cup, um, competition commission could do was to find them. But then you look at that vis-a-vis the action taken about small and medium enterprises by national treasury when they are defaulting on tenders. They are immediately blacklisted. And once you are blacklisted, uh, in the National Treasury list of defaulters. It means you will never be able to secure gov- uh, a- any business from government. For, but for big business, it's a simple a fine, and the next second, it's, everything is normal for them. Whereas with small and medium enterprises, then once you are listed as a defaulter, that's your death knell. You will never recover from that. And within the ecosystem, again, we have the problem of fronting, where you have your traditional establishment um, nominating a few of our people and presenting them as shareholders when actually they do not own any shares in them. In fact, the Department of Trade and Industry has investigated many companies and they found that they were using black people and women as friends for them to be able to secure uh, business from government but for me then this also takes me back to the issue of a brand essence uh, because it is important that a brand as part of its identity should be able to commit that they will act with integrity all the uh, business affairs. Um, before we started this interview, I was saying to Alan that uh, I I value reputation because uh, Shakespeare has defined it as the immortal part of your existence, meaning that even after you are passing on your reputation will persist. In fact, in Macbeth, he says, the evil that men do lives after them. But unfortunately, in this instance, it shows that it will be to a large extent your small and medium enterprises, who will forever be listed as defaulters. And even many years from now, if anybody was to Google them, they will find that they once defaulted. And as such, their reputation will be at risk and they wouldn't be able to secure business from, from everyone. So I'm just saying government should also take a stronger sense. The Competition Commission should take a stronger action against big business instead of just uh, slapping them on, on the knuckles with a fine, which doesn't even impact on their balance sheet at all. And... Once government is able to take that strong action, then we will be able to see the field a bit leveled so that it then also accommodate your emerging sectors into the business.
0: I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, We're going to take a a quick break and come back to you in a second. Beyond Governance, making sense of doing business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus 94 Research, the science of decision-making. If you have just joined us, this is Beyond Governance at 101.9 FM, and my name is Nimrod Simbel. I'm joined by Anna Mukoki, who is the uh, chief executive at the South African Chamber of Commerce and Industry, as well as Ndadeson uh, Molobi who is an executive at Brand Hill, Africa. We are having very interesting conversations about domestic and international corporate governance scandals that, that robbed businesses and, and countries uh, billions of rents. Before we went to that break, saw making very interesting observations about the unfair or imbalanced actions level against big corporates and as well as small businesses. He made reference to the collusion that was observed by the construction industry during the 2010 uh, FIFA World Cup. And most of those uh, companies were just given fines and they were not blacklisted. And yet small businesses uh, whom are in the main black are being, you know, chastised by the National Treasury. He also made a very interesting observation that in in most instances we've seen and have heard through the Department of Small Enterprises and the notion of fronting, which is quite pervasive in the corporate space. And those companies who were found to be using you know, black and female as directors or shareholders, unbeknown to them, they are the level of penalties level against them um, is insignificant given the fact that some of them are still operational today. Which leads me to the question about, you know, the fact that these companies are able to put aside monies for penalties. Um, am I correct to assume that as part of normal budgeting processes, you would have money set aside for penalties in anticipation? to some of these issues. Ellen, you want to come through on that point?
2: Well, yes, I, I think that uh, it's a fair characterization because there's quite a, a number of things that are, play, I, I would think, in society. You know, civil society groups, for instance, that purport to push either for law and order, anti-corruption, they tend to pick and choose those cases largely where the government is is the alleged perpetrator. So if you look at the more resourced organizations, Freedom Under the Law, Afroforum, Outer, you know, Helen Sussman, they wouldn't necessarily choose cases where we as corporates are actually guilty or suspected to be guilty. But where government has done something wrong, there would be much more. So they would learn get more airplay because they are well-funded as well, or they've got better resources. And those are the cases that would actually end up in the court role because someone is pushing them, at least insofar as civil action is concerned. On the other side, where it's supposed to be the criminal justice system, the wheels there tend to grind very, very, very slowly. And uh, I think the Minister of Justice, uh, he, he was giving a presentation that when he was being asked in a media conference around, wh- why why no action around Steinhoff? He was saying, there's no constable. He was saying this, uh, making this example, that Christoph Isse, a chartered accountant of more than 40 years, he does not know what happened at Steinhoff, yet he was the chairman. He, he lost a lot of money, billions, basically of his own investment. He doesn't know what happened. He says there's no constable in the SAPS who can actually go and drill deeper into the whatever is alleged uh, that Marius USD and those who were assisting him had actually done because it became very complex. Now, that's very debilitating if you're going to hear something like that uh, uh, being raised by uh, a minister, especially where you don't hear what exactly is the solution, how are you solving for the problems. The FBI raided uh, Donald Trump yesterday and Donald Trump is facing a whole range of other allegations uh from the from the New York State attorneys uh, side in respect of some of the things that he has done. But the FAA is always going to go and resource itself. Uh lenco is a case in point. They've already taken action against Lenco that South Africa has not taken. Uh and yet Lenco is a company that is very well known in South Africa. His trades in South Africa has done a lot of business. South Africa's got businesses in South Africa. There is no way that you can argue that it is impossible that Glencore could have gone, on their own admission, could have gone and committed all these uh, criminal acts all over the world, and in South Africa, where they have one of the biggest bases, they actually didn't do anything. (laughs) So why is South (laughs) Africa not doing anything about that particular matter? So you have uh, 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 this big lacuna in terms of maybe will on the other side, and maybe on the other side, capability to act. We don't know why that is happening, but it is True that it is actually happening, and that obviously is something that is of of of, of great concern. And um and 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 the, and, the, and the fact that of course that is being raised around whether we are we are committed to driving transformation and the perception that then arises where fraud is being committed, basically perpetrated by big companies and small companies and medium-sized companies when they are alleging that they are pursuing transformational objectives in line with what those triple b act things are saying but they are using fronts which means basically they're going and that's illegal by the way right Mm -hmm. fronting is illegal but you don't find too many companies being charged for fronting you don't find anyone investigating you do have the b commission but you don't find it being capacitated to that extent that it can go and investigate all these allegations of fronting people just get away with impunity uh, in, in that particular regard. So that area in itself where transformation is not being driven because it is being usurped. I myself, you know, have seen so many when I'm advising people in the era of corporate finance and capital raising, I've seen so many of those particular examples where shareholder agreements that have been signed with uh, so-called black shareholders are just a, a share. It's not even a shareholding. You know, people get show, sold shares and were told that this company is now 51% black owned, but The previous owners who used to own 100% have now created a new item in the income statement called a management fee. And they are still taking more than 75% of the income of the company by way of management fee. So the 51% black owner is only 51% of the 25% of the income that is left in the company, which is actually even less than 26% ownership, if you get what I'm saying. So they own less than 5%. But because of the way the transaction is now being structured, okay, it's being structured in such a way that these kinds of things are happening. In other examples, we've seen examples where you are a shareholder. Where have you ever had a situation where, as a shareholder, you're being made to sign a shareholder agreement where if you don't bring business to the business, you can be diluted? That's illegal. Yet black entrepreneurs have actually, or would-be entrepreneurs, or would-be shareholders, let's put it that way, have actually gone out to sign these shareholder agreements that don't make no sense. So they fail to deliver a government contract or so they fail to deliver anything else, then they are diluted and that dilution is actually happening in a separate uh, shareholder agreement that isn't necessarily part of the governance of the company because they as shareholders outside of the corporate governance structure of the company agreed to do these things uh, on their own. And then suddenly those shares have now moved to, to the previous white owners. But in terms of the company governance structure itself, we are told that that company is still 60% or 70% blackout. So these are very real issues um, that Saul is raising because you can't escape them because they're crime, but they also indicate an unwillingness, a lack of desire to promote the idea of social justice via transformation.
0: Uh, thank you very much for that insight. Very interesting observation that you've put through that one. Um, it is part of business Um architect to put monies aside for whatever eventualities, including uh, that of penalties. You also very made an interesting point by how some of the civil society organizations, well-known civil society organizations, their mission is to, you know, to 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 really address perceived injustices perpetrated by government. Whereas in the private sector, that they there isn't that level so that level of rigor. To investigate issues such as shareholding agreement fronting and defaulting in the BEE, which which really begin to quote into question the moral compass of some of these um, civil society organizations that that you that you have um, you know uh, alluded to. I'm sure they'll be able to defend themselves when they've been asked why are well some will argue look this is our mandate. Our mandate is to do one two three four five, but each and every mandate has to be pain by social ethics it has been underpinned by by, by justice it has to be underpinned by transformation imperative and and if those real pillars of transformation aren't seen to be done we cannot be you know putting them under the same banner um, of of transformation um let's you made a, yet another very fantastic um, example of how the FBI continually Raid Donald Trump. He, they may argue That this is about political um, Crucifixion, but the Bottom line is the institutions Of the state are Seen or perceived to be seen in, a, an, in trying to unearth a whole lot Of other stuff, and this is not the same Rigor which we're supposed to be seeing In this country. A case in point Is Glencore. I mean, we have seen In media statements, pretty much Where Glencore operated, they Have admitted wrongdoing to a point of paying particular um you know um, institutions back the money and in this country they have not paid a cent in business on why clearly there's issue of political will perhaps maybe or maybe that we don't have sufficient evidence but it cannot be that glencoe everywhere where everywhere it has got its dealings, um in it, it uh, they've admitted that this is their modus of operandi but so your take on that issue
1: that also speaks to the crisis of leadership that we are experiencing in South Africa. For me, I think to a large extent, our leadership abuses the principle of presumption of innocence uh, in the sense that um they will argue that because so and so wasn't criminally charged in a court of law. That, that means that that person should still be presumed innocent. And for that reason, they wouldn't take a stand against them. I was talking about a set of, of values, a set of, um, of ethics, uh, people acting with integrity. But if you look at the, how leadership is approached in this country, you will then get the sense that if our leaders only think that they are not morally obliged to act with integrity or ethically. Uh, for them, the most important thing is that uh, as long as they are not criminally charged, so nobody can say anything against them. Earlier on, Alan spoke about, uh, the politics of the ruling party in this country. But for me, um, even the issue of step aside, step aside as a, as, as a decision, uh, speaks to the the, 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 the ruling party's integrity, maintaining its ethics and, and moral standards. But then you will have people turning around saying that because I'm, I'm not criminally charged or I'm charged and not yet convicted. Therefore, you can't take a decision against me based on that. Then if we were to learn from other countries, even the UK, um, uh, you remember in, in 2003, when the scandal, uh, of news of the world bribing metropolis in, in London, The commissioner of police, who wasn't implicated, took accountability and said, as the head of the police uh, services in London, he resigned. That you will never find in this country. commissioner of police was going to blame everybody (laughs) below them instead of taking that accountability to say as the political head of the police services, I'm resigning. So this is the kind of culture that we need to inculcate in, in our our leadership here in in this country, where we say as a leader, you should be against moral depravity. You can't just act unethically and say as long as the law isn't against that, so nobody can touch me.
0: No, thank you very much, Professor. We literally run out of time, and I know uh, Ellen is also rushing somewhere. Ellen, you're parting short um, on this very complex and interesting conversation, particularly from the perspective of audit firms, which are often implicated literally in a minute.
2: Well, I think that uh, one of the things that we, we I think we, we got shortchanged with the Zondo uh, Commission was that it wasn't pursued. But it's good that he, I think, if I recall, he did make a recommendation that there should be another commission that ought to be uh, formed permanently to look into all these areas of malfeasance. And I think that the role of uh, consulting firms, the role of audit firms is yet to be explained. And it's been a very critical one in enabling state capture, in fact. And I think that we should uh, uh, lobby for a commission... To go back to look into all those cases where the law firms, audit firms, consulting firms participated in being enablers to corrupt politicians when they wanted to get a particular desired outcome because they are as guilty as anyone else.
0: The assumption is that there will be political will to prosecute, but that's another uh, um, debate for another day. Thank you very much, Alan, for your uh, interesting observation as always. Uh, Brasol, I mean, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it here. We have literally run out of time. Both of you, we really appreciate your insight and commentary, which I think has illuminated um to the listeners and so many issues that are fairly much complex, and others obviously are there to are, are there to be exposed for what they are. Let's do this again in the next uh, short while. It has been absolutely a pleasure having you as always. Thank Wonderful. you very
1: much, Nimrod. Thank you and thank you, Alan. Thank you, so
0: There you are. There we. we that's a very Interesting conversation we've had with Elmo who's the CEO at the South African Chamber of Commerce and Industry as well, of Sol who is an executive at Brand Hill Africa, giving us very uh, pertinent insights on some of the complexities around this particular in this country
1: and globally as it were. As I said, we are signing out. Let's do this again next week.